Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the Gospel of Mark, we are in Mark chapter 9 this morning. We're continuing. We're going to finish chapter 9, Lord willing, today. Our scripture text uh, today is Mark 9, verses 42 to 50. And I'll invite you, if you're able to do so, to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Give ear to God's holy Word. Mark 9, verses 42 to 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, Tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, in in a lot of ways, this uh, this text this morning is a rather difficult one, as we're going to see. Uh, In some ways, I think texts like this, uh, you know, there there are different ways to preach. And what's the saying? You know, there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat. I don't want to think about who thought that one up or why. Uh, but there's a lot of different ways to preach, and they're not all right or wrong. Uh, if you've been here for a, a long time, you know that our, our method is to preach straight through books. We don't jump around from text to text. That doesn't mean that you can't preach topically once in a while or even for a, a short period of time. Uh, but we, I think this kind of a text shows the need for what we call expository preaching and also the, the need for what we call, or is often called, uh, I know theologians like to use Latin. I don't know Latin, but there's a phrase called Lectio Continua, and it's a manner of preaching that goes straight through books. It means, you, you, again, it just means you don't jump around from text to text. And I think it's texts like this that remind us of the need for that kind of preaching on a regular basis. In other words, the kind of preaching that explains what the text says, that sticks to what the text says and doesn't skip the more difficult parts. Uh, that's, that's what we do here. I, I think this, this, this kind of a text shows the need, by and large, for that kind of a thing. And the reason I bring that up this morning is because this, this particular passage, this text, uh, is, is a somewhat difficult one. You know, it's not the kind of text that a preacher is likely to choose to preach on if he's not going straight through a book. If someone invites me to preach, you know, on occasion at their church, there's a good chance this one won't be the first one that jumps to my mind, right? And with, with some obvious, obvious reasons. If I wasn't preaching right through the Gospel of Mark, chances are I may not have picked this text at all to preach on. And why not? Well, it, it, there's a lot of reasons for that. It deals rather bluntly with at least two topics, two subjects that we find very uh, difficult and that are very unpopular even in Christian circles, and that those subjects are the seriousness and dangers of sin and the awful reality of hell itself. Uh, there are a number, a number of biblical subjects that you can preach on or speak at conferences on that will draw a crowd or are likely to draw a crowd on a given Sunday, but 
you know, things that pique people's interest and people you know, might even motivate them to invite their friends and neighbors to join them for worship on a particular Sunday. But hell is probably not one of those. Maybe when you got the email, if you have email and you saw what the text was going to be and what the subject was, I'm going to guess your first thought wasn't, I'm going to invite so-and-so. This, this is the Sunday of all the Sundays I'm going to invite uh, people to hear. Uh, I, I kid, but hopefully that wasn't what went through your mind. But, um, but think about this. As we see in our text, the Lord Jesus Christ preached and taught on the subject of hell. He preached and taught clearly on the subject of, of sin and the wickedness of, of sin. In fact, it's been said that Jesus preached on hell more than any other person did in the entire Bible. I haven't tried to verify that for myself, but I believe it's accurate. Think about that for just a moment. Think about not just the fact that it's in the Bible, which should be enough for any of us, but the fact that Christ himself, you know, a lot of times people like to say about certain subjects that, well, Jesus never taught on X, Y, or Z. Now, very often that's not even right. It's not even accurate. But in this case, and we're going to see from other passages as well, Jesus preached about the subject of hell. And he didn't beat around the bush at it. Now, think about that. Was there ever a more compassionate and kind man in the history of, the, of humanity than Christ himself? Was there ever a more loving person who ever walked this earth than Jesus Christ our Lord? Not even close, right? And yet he preached about hell. That should be a lesson uh, for, for, all, for all of us. That should be a lesson for preachers. I know what, this is me preaching to myself. Our preaching should include whatever our Lord has seen fit to include in his word. Preachers are ambassadors for Christ, and it's not our job to decide what the message is. We are to stick to his text and preach all of it to the best of our abilities. It should be a lesson for all of us in the church, not just for pastors, that, that we believe. Think about what, what we know about scripture, what you believe about, about the scripture being God's word. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17. We say we believe this. And this is there. Paul says... All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What does Paul say there? Notice he says all scripture. Even scripture like this. Even scripture like this that talks about over and over again the subject of hell. What Paul would be telling us there is that even subjects, texts like this, are somehow necessary for us. That they are, he uses the word, profitable for you and I as believers in Christ to hear these things taught, to hear these things as reproof, as correction, and even for training in righteousness. In some sense, in a very real sense, you and I would not be complete and equipped for every good work without this text, without what this text has to tell us about sin and hell. You and I as believers in some way need to hear and be reminded about the awful realities of hell. God saw fit to include this text in his word, and so it is profitable and helpful for us to hear of it. It's included, it's included here in the book of Mark for our good and not to do us harm, as everything in the scripture is for our good. So I hope that you'll keep these things in mind as we go through this passage this morning. Uh, we're going to see, uh, as is our custom, my custom anyway, to see at least three things. We might see more than three things. 
The first thing we're going to have to look at is the question of textual issues, the difficulty of textual issues. The second thing we're going to see is the difficult reality of hell. And the third thing, the third difficulty, so to speak, in our text is the dangers of sin. So the first thing I think we should deal with in our text as we approach this passage of Scripture is the presence of what we sometimes are called textual issues. Now, I would love to skip over this part. I would love to ignore this and pretend that no one notices it in the text. That would make my life much easier. But you may have noticed as you were reading your Bible in front of you, as I was reading the text this morning, that in our ESV translation and other translations, um, there were a couple verse numbers you may not have noticed on your page by their being conspicuous by their absence. And that is verse 44 and verse 46. I'm, I'm not good at math, but I know that if I'm counting consecutively and I get to 42, 43, the next one is not 45. And the next one after, uh, after 45 is, is, uh, is not 47. That, uh, now, if you're reading the King James Bible, which is based on what we call the Textus Receptus, that's, it's gonna, this isn't going to be a Latin sermon, but uh, that, that just, that's a fancy way of saying the received text. That was the nickname or the name for it. You will notice that in your Bible, the phrase that we see in the ESV in verse 48, it says this uh, in the King James, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. That in your ESV, NIV, New American Standard and others, you see that one time in verse 48, but in the King James you see in verse 44, 46, and then again in 48. Now that's actually a quote. That's a quote from Isaiah 66, verse 24, which is actually the last verse in the book of Isaiah. All this, this book we've been reading through in our scripture readings in, in some Sunday mornings, most Sundays, um, that is the very last thing you read, the very last verse in Isaiah's prophecy is a prophecy of judgment on, the, on those who continue in their rebellion against the Lord. Now, what are we to make of the fact that this is found differently in some manuscripts than others? That in some manuscript evidence it's found three times, and in others it's only found once. Now, this is not the time or place to go into some kind of a detailed uh, exp explanation of textual criticism, and as the, our former president uh, at least one time said, it's probably above my pay grade to, to decide such a thing. But at the same time, I think it's important for us as believers, as simple as, as we may consider ourselves, that we don't duck issues like this. Even in the preaching of God's word, we shouldn't be afraid to deal with these things as if somehow the scripture, uh, I don't know if you guys ever have played the game Jenga. You ever played Jenga? You, you pull a little piece of wood out and you try not to make the whole thing fall down, we shouldn't treat the scripture like a, like, a, like a Jenga game, where if you pull one thing out, all of a sudden the whole thing is suddenly going to collapse, and God's word is somehow going to be shown to not be God's word. So we shouldn't treat it like, like it's walking on eggshells here. We want to be, be honest with, with whatever issues there might be. Uh, one thing we do not want to do as a church or as believers, I think, we don't ever want to be able to be accused of asking people to check their brains at the door. When they come through the church door, we don't want people having an excuse to think that that's what we're telling them to do. So if we're going to stand here, if I'm going to stand here and commend the practice of expository preaching, speak of the inspiration and errancy and authority and sufficiency of God's word, of all of God's word, I think we have to make at least some effort to answer what some may find as to be difficult questions, even ones like this. 
It's a little preview of coming attractions. It's not the last one we're going to have in the, in the Gospel of Mark. If you might know, the ending of Mark is very much disputed, but we will settle that when we get there. I won't deal with that right at the moment. Well, the textual scholars who are behind what we call the critical text, uh, what they do is they determine that the text on which our translations uh, here are based, what they decided was that the Greek text of that threefold repetition where it says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, what they found was that that was not found in some of the earlier manuscripts. It wasn't found in, in, in all of them. Nothing's found in all of them. We don't have you know, a hundred different texts of all of the scriptures, but it wasn't found in some of those earlier Greek manuscripts, and so they, what they decided was the most likely explanation was that a, the repetition in those later copies was because copyists at some time duplicated the phrase. For some, sometimes people say that it was for some kind of a poetic balance. There seems to be a poetic meter to the text, and they, somebody must have thought that that might have thought that that was somehow uh, lacking. There's no easy answer for that, whether that is the case or whether it all belongs there. Um, in either case, whether you believe it should be there three times, whether you believe it should be there once, and I, I won't pretend to be able to tell you for sure what the case is. Um, either way, does that difference change anything about the content or the theology of the text? Is there a single thing in the text that is built or based upon either it being repeated or not being repeated? No. In fact, the fact that it's there once means everything that's in it is still in it, whether it's repeated three times uh, or not. Um, either way, Jesus here plainly speaks of hell, doesn't he? It would be, it would be easy for the enemies of the gospel if, if the only part of the text that mentioned hell was the part that was missing in the earlier manuscripts and say, ah, maybe Jesus really didn't talk about hell. We don't get, we don't get that as, as an option, thankfully. The only difference is the repetition itself or the lack of such repetition. Either way, uh, the, the statement itself is there. It's still a quote from the book of Isaiah. You might notice in your Bibles, I don't know which one you're looking at, but sometimes it'll put it in a footnote. I think that my ESV says the same thing. It, it tells you that verse 44 and 46 uh, or omitted here, but it's in some text. Sometimes you'll have a text, it'll put it in brackets. If you have a Bible and there's a part in a bracket, that's the translator's way of telling you that they're not sure if this was in the original text or not, but it's always better to include it, isn't it? I don't think it's the, the job of any textual critic to remove something entirely and not let the reader know that this very possibly should belong in the text. So this, this textual question in no way changes the doctrine or the truth of this text of Scripture. The same truths are both taught and emphasized by Christ our Lord either way. This minor textual question doesn't give us room to wiggle off the hook when it comes to Jesus teaching his clear teaching on the subjects of sin and of hell. In fact, you could say, what do I always say whenever I mention something's repeated in the Bible? I say that's at bare minimum. Why does the Bible repeat something? It's for emphasis, to get our attention. Even without the threefold repetition in the text, Jesus mentions the unquenchable fire more than once, doesn't he? He repeats it as if, as if we were going to miss it. He repeats it more than once either way. Verses 43 through 48, he mentions the fact that this fire is unquenchable. It cannot be and will not be put out. In a general sense, there is no doctrine found in all of Scripture, in all of God's Word, that hangs 
on a disputed text like this. There is no doctrine taught in the Bible that hangs or is dependent upon anything that might be in any question whatsoever. Not a single one. There is no doctrine in the Christian faith based upon any text that we have questions about. There are no doctrines in Scripture that can be decided based upon those kinds of questions. The vast majority of those textual questions boil down to such things as spelling differences, as stylistic differences at times. Sometimes copyists seem to try to smooth out the readings of a text and really don't change the sense of the text in any way at all. In, in summary, there's no book in all of antiquity in existence today that can boast of the overwhelming textual evidence and witness that the Bible has. There is no book like the Bible. There is no book with as much textual evidence and witness to it in antiquity the way the Bible has. You and I have every reason, despite these questions, to believe that God has both inspired and breathed out his holy word, that he has sovereignly also seen to it that it's been preserved for us even to this very day. Well, that brings us to our, our second, uh, second difficult part of our text, maybe the most difficult part of our text, and that's the, the, the difficult reality, the awful reality of hell itself. Jesus speaks rather bluntly about the subject of hell, doesn't he? It almost comes across as, as impolite, we might think. And he does so repeatedly. You know, he's not like us. We're, we tend to be, most of us, I, I speak for myself, to be kind of timid. We, we might say something unpopular, we might just kind of spit it out and then leave that subject in the dust. Maybe they, maybe they won't notice I brought it up. Jesus doesn't, doesn't do that. He brings it up repeatedly. There's no escaping the point he's making throughout this entire passage. Now, that, may, that might make us uncomfortable at times. There's a lot of things in the Bible that might make you uncomfortable, but they're there for a reason, aren't they? And it's better to be uncomfortable than it is to gloss over whatever somebody says in the scripture that God has put there for our good. In the, in the previous verses, verses 39 to 41, Jesus spoke of the certainty, certainty of reward. We looked at that last week. He talked about the reward for those who served him, even those who simply gave a cup of water to one of his disciples to drink because they belonged to Christ, because they were of Christ. Well, here he kind of brings up the opposite reality as well, that of punishment. In verse 42, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, uh, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, the King James Version, which is, I'm going to guess, for some of us, this is the more familiar wording of it. It says, whoever shall offend one of these little ones. Now, most, uh, a lot of modern translations, such as the ESV, uh, they render it a little differently because we don't use the word offend the same way anymore. We, we think of being offended in, in a lot of a much different, a much different way. In fact, in our day, people are offended by just about everything. We might live in the most easily offended generation in human history. In fact, people seem to think that the Bill of Rights is all about the, the freedom from being offended by a view that contradicts something that I or you believe. Well, that's, that's not what Jesus is referring to when he speaks of, to use the King James language, offending. Uh, offending one of, his, one of his little ones who believe in him. That's not what he's talking about. But Jesus doesn't beat around the bush here. He doesn't leave any doubt as to what he's talking about when he says having a great millstone hung around our necks and being tossed into the sea 
think about this, he says that would be preferable to how awful the actual punishment would be for such a thing. I don't know about you, but if, if I'm playing, let's make a deal, I'm not picking a millstone and a sea, and Jesus says, you would. That's really what he's saying. The actual punishment would make that look preferable. And he's still talking about, about hell there. He's talking about the fires of hell. You'd rather be drowned in the middle of the sea with a millstone around your neck than to go to an eternity in hell. In verses 43 to 48, Jesus says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, what does he say again? Cut it off, for it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, not just hands and feet, your eye, tear it out. Why? It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. And then he quotes Isaiah there, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's a pretty graphic picture. The worm not dying, what's it's, a, it's a picture of the grave. You know, the worm... The, the conquering worm, one poet talked about, that, that conquers kings and paupers alike. That, that worm doesn't die. That worm never stops his buffet, and the fire is never put out. That's a graphic description. Hell, the word hell here is the word Gehenna. Now, the word Gehenna, it's not a referral to a tattoo. It's a, it's a place, it's an actual place to the south of Jerusalem, it was there during the reign of, of both King Ahaz and King Manasseh. And during their wicked reigns, children, the children of Israel, were offered up as fire. Infants, babies, were offered up in fire as sacrifices to the false god Moloch. You can see the book of Second Kings, chapter 16, Second Chronicles 28, to see some detail about that. Now, because of the wickedness of that place, the wickedness associated with that place it became pronounced unclean. It became the place where the city's garbage and refuse was burned. And the fire of that refuse was kept burning. It was always burning. That's the way, that's the way that place was, was treated. And so it's, it's a picture of the eternal punishment of the wicked. So that the name of that place became kind of, in the, the jargon of the day, it became another name for hell we, we translate it as hell because we don't know what Gehenna uh, really means but it's a picture of eternal punishment of, of the wicked of those who rebel against the Lord the Puritan writer Thomas Watson my favorite Puritan uh, he, was, he was fond of saying that all other fire is as and the, the, what his quote is all other fire is quote painted fire in comparison to the fires of hell you know real fire you'd never stick your hand in you never dream, you might warm, like Dan mentioned from the reading this morning, you might warm your hands by it, but if you're smart, you don't get too close. But a picture of fire, you wouldn't even think twice about touching that. And he said, that's what real fire is compared to hell. Sermons on what the Bible has to say about hell used to be a lot more common than they are in our day. I doubt they were ever actually common. Uh, the most famous sermon in American history, you might be aware, by Jonathan Edwards, preached in the 18th century, sinners in the hands of an angry God was about hell. You've heard the phrase fire and brimstone sermon. You've probably maybe never heard one. Well, that was the stereotypical fire and brimstone sermon. The word is that he read it kind of verbatim from his manuscript, hardly looked up from it, didn't inflect his voice, didn't raise his voice, 
But people were shouting and shrieking and screaming and crying to the point where he had to tell them to be quiet so he could finish. If you can imagine that kind of a thing. The Lord used that, that awful sermon, awful meaning not terrible, but awe-inspiring and, and scary in some sense sermon, to start the great awakening in this country. You almost have to wonder uh, if one of the reasons we don't see much awakening in our land is that we, we neglect to preach the whole scripture, including things like this. In, in part of that sermon, Edward says this, Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. In other words, most unbelievers, if they even acknowledge that it exists, what do they think? Well, surely that's for someone else. I, I must be the bar. I must myself be the standard. And everyone else who's worse than me, maybe they might go, but not, not me. Charles Spurgeon once wrote this. He says, What is written in the Bible must be preached, whether it be gloomy or cheerful. There are some ministers who never mention anything about hell. Now, if I saw that house on fire over there, do you think I would stay, stand and say, I believe the operation of combustion is proceeding yonder? <laughs> no, no, not many people would be aroused to flee from that. He said, no, I would call out fire, fire, and then everyone would know what I meant. You get his point. Some things need to be said plainly and bluntly and maybe even loudly. There's a right tone in a way to say things. Over and over again, the scriptures speak of the reality of hell, of the eternal punishment, away from the presence of the Lord, Paul describes it as in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. The book of Revelation repeatedly speaks of it as what? The lake of fire. Repeatedly. Four or five times towards the end of the book, as if we would miss the point if it didn't repeat it that way. Not only that, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself repeatedly affirms the awful reality of hell. In our text, he repeatedly warns us of the dangers of it. And in Luke 12, verses 4 to 5, this is what Jesus himself says. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He's saying fear God. Who has the authority to cast into hell? The judge. Who is the judge? Jesus Christ, who's going to return to judge the living and the dead, as the creeds say. So if hell is a real place, and it is, and the Bible says plainly that it is, and if sinners outside of Christ are in very real danger of it, which they are, which the Bible tells us they are, then there is nothing nice, kind, or gracious, or, 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 or friendly about refraining from speaking of it to those people. Or do we think that we're wiser than Christ himself who repeatedly talked about the subject? J.C. Ryle once said, There is no mercy in keeping back from men the subject of hell. We think we're being nice. We think we're being polite. But we're not. We're anything but. Either that or we're accusing Christ of not being kind, of not being polite and not being nice. And that brings us to our third, our third point. Another difficult point is the difficult subject of the dangers of sin itself. Here in our text, what does Jesus tell us here? It's very graphic language, isn't it? He tells us to cut off what? Your hand. Try doing things with one hand. And we kind of joke around about one hand tied behind my back. I mean, things are hard without your hands. God gave you hands for a reason. We do almost everything with our hands. Everywhere you go is with your feet. And he says, it'd be better for you to cut one of them off if it's going to keep you in the way of sin. And even to, cast, to, to cut out uh, our eye. 
rather than to go to hell with, with both eyes, both feet, and both hands. Now that remedy sounds awfully extreme. Makes us, I think, uncomfortable if we spend time thinking about it. Now Jesus, it's almost always said, and, and it's true, he's not being literal here. The application, I hope you understand, is not to go home and break, you know, start scheduling amputations with the doctor. <laughs> Radical plastic surgery and things. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And why is it? Why do we know that? If I cut my hand off, would I stop sinning? Would that really keep me from sinning? Might make it slightly difficult, but it wouldn't keep me from sinning. If I cut both my feet off, would it keep me from sinning? Absolutely not. If I cut both my, if I lost my eyesight, would I never sin again? No. Jesus isn't saying that's the way. He's not telling us how to mortify. Here's the real way, the easy way, the painful way to mortify sin in our members. Start cutting your members off. He's not saying that at all. No, we could have all, all of our faculties impaired and we'd still sin and sin in our thoughts and words and deeds every day more than we care to admit. But that figurative or metaphorical remedy here does tell us one thing, at least, if not more. It points us to the real seriousness and danger of our sins. It should wait, this, this kind of graphic imagery should make us sit up and take notice and say, you know, my, my dallying with sin is much more dangerous than I, say, than I would like to think that it is. If we had a right view or estimation of our sins, the remedy that Jesus mentions here, even if it's figurative, would not quite seem so extreme. We think it's extreme because we think of sin lightly. That's, that's the problem. We tend, you and I do, I know I do, we tend to have a rather low view of sin. We don't like to talk about sin, right? And we have a low view of sin because we have a low view of God and his holiness. And we have also, because of that, a foolishly high view of ourselves. It's like we took a telescope and reversed it. We see big things as little and we see little things, that's us, as big. We don't see God as big, so we don't see our sin as all that big. And we see ourselves as too big, so we don't think our sin is much of anything at all. You and I, we take sin lightly because we don't see it for what it is. We don't see it the way the scripture describes it. And so we think hell is unreasonable because we don't think much of our sins. And we don't think much of God's holiness and his infinite holiness and majesty. That's why we think hell unreasonable. That's why we think hell couldn't possibly be true if that's what we think. You know, we can get a glimpse of the right view of sin by a couple things, even just one sin, by considering the awful effects of just one sin in the Garden of Eden. One of the ways to get a right view of sin is to see what one sin caused. What did, what did Adam's one sin in the Garden cause? ever since. Romans 5.12, Paul says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Twice in that chapter, he mentions that death reigned because of Adam's sin. That death reigned because of Adam's sin. So death, sin, condemnation, all came through one act of sin and rebellion against God. Every single sin since Every act of wickedness, all the miseries of this present evil age that we live in, all the wars, all the disease, sickness and death, all the sadness, all the mourning, all the tears, all of that find their origin in one single act of sin in the Garden of Eden. One act of rebellion. 
That's all from one sin. Without that one sin, none of that stuff happens. But with that sin, everything bad that we experience in this life and the next is the result. And I ask myself and, and you at this as well, how many times have we sinned even today? How many times have I sinned from the time I opened my eyes this morning to the time I'm standing before you? I, I probably couldn't count it. Sins of omission, of the heart, of the mind, even of, of words and things. Uh, J.I. Packer has said there can be no small sins against an infinite God. And he's right. If we view sins horizontally, looking at each other, measuring ourselves by each other, no wonder we have a low view of sin. But if we have a, high, a right view of an infinite God, we start to see our sins for what they they are. We start to see the dangers of our sins for what they are. And then we might be willing to cut off things, hand, foot, or whatever it might be, that, that offends and causes us to sin. So this morning I have to ask, are you coddling your sins? Are we kind of keeping them in our hip pocket? Not, not getting rid of them completely, but kind of keeping them in, you know, they're in the guest room, they're in the garage. You know, they're, they're not here in the living room where everybody can see them, but they're still there. It's not without reason that in the Lord's Prayer that we pray so often that we're not just taught to pray for forgiveness, although we are. What comes right after that? Lead us not into temptation. We, we need help. And Jesus puts that as one of the main things in our prayer lives as individuals and as the church, to pray not to be led into temptation. We might not need to cut off our hands or feet, we might need, not need to pluck out our eyes, but maybe one of us needs to cut off a particular friendship. Maybe the internet access or some other such thing. We need to take our, be ruthless with our sins. It's something we always need to learn and relearn. We, there's a second way to learn to view the seriousness of our sins and the dangers of it. It's not just its results, but its remedy or its cure. What did it take to save us from our sins? A good example, a reminder. This is; these are all different theories of, of Christ's atonement. You know, God just showing us how much He loves us by sending His Son, even though He didn't really need to. Is that what we're supposed to get from the Scripture? No. The cost for our salvation points to the gravity of our sin, and what was the cost? The death and resurrection of God's own only begotten Son. Certainly, we must believe that if, if some smaller price could have been paid to save us that that would have been sufficient he would not have sent his son there's a hymn I, I almost feel bad that, that I, did, I didn't pick it uh, but there's a hymn we sing around Good Friday and Easter every, every year that says this better than I can it's stricken smitten and afflicted it's quoted from Isaiah the, the, the title is and this is what it says in one of the verses ye who think of sin but lightly nor suppose its evil great here may view its nature rightly here its guilt may estimate, mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load, tis the word the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. So the hymn writer is fantastically on the, on the money there. You want to see how bad sin is, and, and it's the right way to estimate its, its weight, look at what price had to be paid to save us from it. The, the, the sacri- mark the sacrifice appointed See who bears the awful load. The word, the Lord's anointed Son of Man and Son of God. That's the gospel right there. We will not appreciate the gospel of Christ, of God's Son, if we don't understand sin and even hell. In closing, I'd like to offer you one last quote. This has been a sermon full of quotes. 
apologize in advance, not in advance, but uh, J.C. Ryle, who else would I quote? Uh, he says this, Were there no boundless mercy in Christ for all who believe in him, we might well shrink back from the awful topic, the topic of hell. Were there no precious blood of Christ able to cleanse away all sin, we might well keep silence about the wrath to come. But there is mercy for Christ for all who, in, who ask in Christ's name. There is a fountain open for all sin. Let us then boldly and unhesitatingly maintain that there is a hell and beseech men to flee from it before it be too late. Knowing the terrors of the Lord, the worm and the fire, let us persuade men. He quotes 1 Corinthians 5.11. It is, it is not possible to say too much about Christ, but it is quite possible to say too little about hell. Christ himself, as we have just seen, preached about hell in unmistakable, blunt, and clear terms. But let us remember that the one who preached so bluntly and openly about hell was also the one who willingly suffered hell in our place for our salvation. He took the punishment, as Isaiah says, that we deserve for our sins so that all who turn to him by faith might be forgiven and accepted as righteous in the sight of a holy God, an infinitely holy God. And the one who tells us to cut off our hands or feet rather than continue in sin was the one who willingly allowed his hands and feet to be pierced for our salvation. He suffered death so that sinners like you and I might live. And he was raised from the dead on the third day for our justification to show that the price had been paid. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have many things in your scriptures that are um, have what we perceive to be rough edges because we have the rough edges that we perceive as being difficult because we don't yet see things the way that we ought to see. We thank you that your word uh, sometimes makes us for our good uncomfortable and puts us outside of our comfort zone. We thank you that, that we have no less than your, than your beloved son as the model preaching about hell because he wanted to drive men to flee from it to flee from the wrath to come, to turn to him and be saved. We thank you that your word tells us that you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they might turn from their ways and live. And that the message all through your scriptures from front to back could be summed up in just that, that you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that you, you, tell, you tell us to turn from our ways and turn to Christ, your son, and live. We pray that if anybody here does not yet know you, whether they be a longtime member or, or not, that you might even awaken them even now and open their eyes to see Christ in the gospel and flee to him and have life in his name. We pray for our, all of our relatives and loved ones and neighbors and friends that we, we each probably know that, that we know or have no reason to believe know you yet, that are still in their sins and still think lightly of maybe even joke about the reality of hell. We ask that you might awaken them, open their eyes, turn them to Christ that they might have life in his name. Give us grace to be faithful witnesses to all your word has to say. And we pray that you might be pleased to bless even, even preaching about this subject to the salvation of sinners. To the glory of Christ's name, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.